Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for season two of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released every Monday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. Sports is everywhere in America, as we all know. The Super Bowl, the Masters, the World World Series, the Stanley Cup, the Olympics, the NBA, the MLB, the NFL, youth travel sports, and the list goes on and on and on. So if we understand sports, we may understand something of America. For us on this podcast series, the question is, does religion factor into sports? It seems the answer is a loud yes. In 1976, Sports Illustrated published a three-part essay by the famed sports commentator Frank DeFord titled Religion in Sport, in which he analyzed the cozy relationship between Christianity and sports in the United States, and it was in this article that he coined the term sportianity, writing it this way, quote, It is almost as if a new denomination has been created, sportianity. While Christian churches struggle with problems of declining attendance, falling contributions, and now even reduction in membership, sportianity appears to be taking off. Close quote. That same year, Michael Novak published The Joy of Sports, articulating the religiosity embedded in the playing and cheering on of sports. Today's discussion will help us all better understand what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, and we trust that as a result, listeners will see how indispensable the idea of religious freedom is as a governing principle to the United States and its ability to fulfill its purposes in the world. We have with us today Jeffrey Scholes to talk about religion and sports. He is Associate Professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and author of the upcoming book, Christianity, Race, and Sport, to be published next year by Routledge Press. Professor Skoll's interests include the relationship between religion and sports and American political theology. He is the author of Vocation and the Politics of Work, Popular Theology in a Consumer Culture, and co-author of Religion and Sports in American Culture. We encourage listeners to visit storyofamericanreligion.org and sign up for future podcast notifications under the sign-up tab. Jeff, it is wonderful to have you with us today. Wonderful to be here, Chris. Thank you so much. This is an absolutely fascinating topic. Those two, the, the book and the articles uh, quoted earlier were from a long time ago, but from what you write, that sort of started this whole study off on how does religion influence sports? And a lot has happened from that time, but I think those probably established some pretty important markers in this field. Um, 
Before we dive into your particular angle on this intersection of religion and sports in America, could you tell us about a couple of the most prominent ways observers of American culture have linked religion and sports to provide something of a framework for our listeners to what we will discuss today? Sure. Uh, if you go back to 1976, as you did with um, Novak and Ford, um, both of them were attempting to try to talk about sport and religion as kind of a, a separate entities. And Novak is arguing that sport is, as he says, somehow a religion. So he's looking for religious qualities in sport itself. So he's making an argument as a Catholic theologian uh, back then, he passed away a couple of years ago, um, that in fact, sport is a type of religion, despite what others may think of sport being a, a purely secular activity as opposed to religion. Um, DeFord, as you suggest, is, is arguing that um, this coziness between, in particular, evangelical Christianity and its fascination with sport, which still continues today, is a problem, but he's still conceiving of sport and religion as kind of two separate entities that come together very badly and poorly and, and should be critiqued. So his angle is more of a critical um, analysis of the relationship, whereas Novak is trying to, to link the two together. Um, you know, through the 80s and 90s, uh, you had uh, kind of what I, what I would call kind of a second wave of the scholarship of religion and sport, uh, whereby uh, kind of DeFord's critique is continued, but there's more of a historical approach to it. There's a, a, an emphasis and a looking back at this phenomenon called muscular Christianity that was really taking shape in England and the United States in the late 19th, early 20th century that helped form the YMCA. Um, and it, it, it argued essentially in Victorian age, United States and England, that uh, in particular white boys were kind of getting soft or uh, are, are coddled and mothered too much and are working in factories and not on the farm. And therefore um, to make the argument that Jesus was somehow muscular and athletic uh, was meant to prod or to connect religion or Christianity to athletic activity, which it hadn't been so in the past. In fact, Puritans frowned upon sports as an activity, um, as something that would take you away from spiritual activities like reading the Bible and praying. Uh, so muscular Christianity attempted to reverse that and put them together. So in the 80s and not 1980s and, and 1990s, you see um, a, a looking back and a trying to reckon that with where we are now based on the past, in particular with muscular Christianity. Right. Um, to, posi uh, to position like my work, uh, the book that's coming out next year, and I'm also have to give a plug for a, a book that I'm co-editing with uh, Randall Balmer uh, called Religion and Sport in America. It's an edited volume, so we have essays coming in. And almost all those essays also kind of fit in what I would call a third wave, which I would argue that we're, we're in right now, uh, of the scholarship of religion and sport, that brings, that's not just satisfied certainly to silo religion and sport in an attempt to put them together, but to argue that religion and sport are co-constitutive, they help form each other. You cannot separate the two. Just as I argue in my monograph book, you, uh, you know, race and religion are also co-constitutive of each other. So is uh, sport and race, certainly. Um, and as a result, and in, in response to um, uh, an emphasis on, say, intersectionality, to bring in race, gender, sexual orientation, ethnicity, um, even the transgender movement in particular uh, with uh, cases like Castor Semenya, the, the, the runner, um, you know, whether she needs to have testosterone tests in order to compete with the women. All of these other issues that are really kind of political 
are now brought to bear in the sporting world and to look at the role that religion plays in um, either problems in the sporting world or good things in the sporting world uh, that is happening with these with these other things. So this third wave is much more um, broad in the sense that history is still brought in, but religion and sport are not taken as separate entities. And that permits the um, introduction of these other um you know, again, gender, race, all these are things that have been with us for a long time, but now religion and sports scholars are much more likely to bring them uh, to bear on their own studies. Okay. That's very, very helpful as we move forward here. Um, so t- tell us this before we go to the, the three chapters in your upcoming book that we're going to discuss. How did the historical, well, I guess you're a philosopher, not a historian, right? Would that be? I'm actually religious studies. They, they let me teach in the philosophy okay. department, so my okay. doctorate's in religious studies. Okay. So why did you, I guess tell us this, why did you feel like you needed to write about religion, race, and sports instead of just religion and sports? Well, number one, I, I, as you mentioned at the onset, I co-written a book on religion and sport, um, but there's certainly another one I, I could write about, generally speaking. And the introduction to the co-edited book that's coming out next year is much more about religion and sport in general. But, um, I mean, really really one thing, um, well, actually two things. One was the um, Colin Kaepernick uh, kneeling for the national anthem in, in the, the beginning part of the 2016 football season. Um, it... it uh, allowed a new kind of, in particular, black activism to take place and solidarity with people of other races to join them. Um, But it was the kind that we really hadn't seen since the 1960s and 70s with someone like Muhammad Ali or, um, you know, uh, Jim Brown or uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So uh, there was this gap really that Michael Jordan helped initiate where uh, commercialization and um, kind of this generalized hero status that was apolitical. That was the way in which most African-American athletes right. uh, chose to be with the leader, Michael Jordan. That really has changed. You look at LeBron James, the likely maybe most famous athlete on, in the world. He's incredibly political. Uh, he talks about politics all the time. Um, but I think he was given permission to do so largely by what Colin Kaepernick did. Um, so that just got me to thinking. The second thing I was invited to uh, write an essay on religion, race, and sport um, in an edited volume in 2018. Uh, so I, after writing that, I thought, you know, there may be a book in here. Okay. So, but it was really Colin Kaepernick that kicked off the idea that just writing about religion and sport and, and leaving out race or only including it minimally uh, wouldn't do religion and sport justice. You just, you just have to. In the United right. States, you cannot avoid it at all. And sure enough, there, there, there was a book in there. So that, that's what kind of okay. prompted it. Well, thank you for doing that. It's uh, fascinating and I think important for Americans, all of us, to sort of understand better. Jeff, let's talk a little bit about um, about civil rights and sports, uh, race and sports. You, you write this in your introduction. Uh, sports advocates have often laid claim to a kind of proto-civil rights record that sports possesses in that teams, leagues, and governing bodies have allowed the entry of members of minority races onto its fields and into its locker rooms well before the courtesy was extended at the doors of public school, buses, and restaurants, and that it came, though, with a steep price, close quote. Can you elaborate on this uh, as far as what the historical records indicate here? Yeah, uh, you know, um, sport and sport advocates in particular 
uh, oftentimes like to think of uh, its own industry as uh, a colorblind meritocracy, whereby if you are good enough, no matter race, even gender, as we saw recently, there was a, a woman kicker for um, Vanderbilt that actually got in the field and, and kicked, kicked off. Um, if you are good enough, no matter any other quality, how rich you are, how poor you are, what color your skin is, you will make the team and you will play. So therefore, it's a meritocracy and it's supposedly colorblind. And there are examples of this. I think really, first of all, to uh, Jack Johnson, the great boxer in the early part of the 20th century, African-American from Galveston, um, who for a long time was not allowed to fight white, play, white, white boxers, um, but finally was so good uh, that it, it began to concern the white community that uh, the, everyone else was believing that no white boxer could beat him. So therefore, they had to find what they called the great white hope. Um, to, to fight Jack Johnson and Jack Johnson in Reno, Nevada, absolutely destroyed. I think Jim Jeffress was his name, um, destroyed him, <laughs> but then was penalized afterwards. He was actually dating white women. This is in the early, this is the height of Jim Crow. Um, and Illinois made up a law that said you could not uh, bring like a, a mixed race couple could not cross state lines. So when he did, they arrested him, put him in jail. So there are ways of stopping that too. Um, but that's an example of say, you know, really before uh, African-Americans um, had the Civil Rights Act passed, um, that Jack Johnson was allowed to fight white boxers. You say the same thing about Jackie Robinson in 1947, uh, crossing the color barrier, you know, a good 10 years before Brown versus Board of Education. Um, so therefore that allows sports advocates to, to, to argue again for not only sports being kind of proto-civil rights or before it, um, because it's more fair, but also the reason for that is that it's a colorblind meritocracy. I make very strong arguments that, in fact, it is not a colorblind meritocracy. Um, the profit motive in the case of Johnson fighting and in the case of Jackie Robinson being signed by the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1945 and then finally getting to play for the Dodgers in 1947. As Jackie Robinson said in his autobiography, Branch Rickey, the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, if you've seen the movie 42, they Harrison Ford plays him and they chronicle uh, this, this famous meeting that they had. But Jackie Robinson in his autobiography said it was about money. In fact, he said that. You know, people talked about how religious Branch Rickey was, and he was very pious, but Robinson says that the God that he really worshiped was money, and therefore putting Jackie Robinson on the field was going to bring African-Americans to the ballpark and other people as well, and they would be more successful and therefore make more money. So it wasn't necessarily that, that Branch Rickey was you know, a, a Martin Luther King type at all. It maybe had that effect for a lot of people, but there's always a profit motive um, to this quote, colorblind meritocracy. Okay, fair enough. Good. Okay, so now let's get into some details. Uh, as I said, we're just going to cover three uh, of your chapters, Jeff, and the first one will be what you call the domestication of Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. The second will be religious expression in the NFL for blacks and whites. And the third will be, and I, I love this title of the chapter, The Black Prophetic Fire of Colin Kaepernick. So, Jeff, you write that the world-famous American boxers Muhammad Ali and George Foreman uh, were angry and dangerous black men, and they needed and then were tamed. And that was done employing the same reasoning used to treat black bodies in the American past with chains, rape, beatings, and lynchings, often with religious justification. Can you tell this story for us? Yeah, so... Um the religious part of this domestication process, and by the way, as most people probably know, Muhammad Ali was uh, tamed or domesticated 
in a sense, through no fault of his own, through Parkinson's disease, which he contracted or got sometime in the 1980s. And he wasn't able to really speak or, or certainly move nearly as well, um, which is very evident in interviews he did. And maybe people remember him lighting the, the Olympic torch in the Atlanta Games in 1996, but he could, you know, barely walk. Um, and then in George Foreman's case, it's, it's, you know, he hasn't been ravaged by Parkinson's or some physical disease, but um, he becomes a entrepreneur selling these indoor grills. Um, he becomes an evangelist. He converts to evangelical Christianity in 1977, becomes a pastor. Um, he's got this personality where he's smiling, uh, patriotic, Christian, capitalist. So in a sense, that those qualities tend to uh, make George Foreman palatable and safe for white audiences. So there's a domestication process that has gone on there as well. So two different processes of domestication, but nevertheless, the effects are the same. What I argue is that the white, in particular white Protestant community, is more able to accept and even forget or, quote, forgive some of the actions or fear that they, that was instilled in them, certainly with Muhammad Ali, with his, his not only his punching power, but more so his, his mouth and his mind, right? He converts to Nation of Islam uh, right after his uh, winning the heavyweight championship in 1964 um, and is brilliant <laughs> and frightening. I mean, no one had ever heard an athlete, white or black, talk like that. Um, he was the most famous athlete in the world as well. So his word carried a ton of weight. And the Nation of Islam, as, as many may know, um, based on the Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X as well, were arguing for a kind of uh, separatism. There were different versions of that, whether it was to go back to, for blacks to go back to Africa or to create a separate country of their own because the United States was hopelessly white supremacist and hopelessly uh, a white version of Christianity, which Ali rejects as he changes his name to, from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali. So that fear instilled in the white community uh, based on not only a physical presence of a large, dangerous black body, which George Foreman certainly had as well before his conversion experience, he never smiled before. There's footage, by the way, for, for the listeners or viewers, the, the Rumble in the Jungle documentary um, is uh, When We Were Kings is fantastic. It, it, the fight is between Ali and Foreman um, after Ali uh, gets over his three-year suspension for refusing to fight in Vietnam. Yet again, another protest that frightens, um, or at least it makes white Americans very wary of what is he really up to. Um, but uh, that fight brings them together. Um, but really after that begins this kind of domestication process, whereby in particular, like I say, white Protestants are more able to um, think of Muhammad Ali as uh, you know, one of their own, right? Because he can't do damage, because he can't speak his mind anymore. And George Foreman just becomes, quote, one of them. So in a sense, the domestication process for Foreman is something that he did on his own. You know, he appears on the 700 Club. Muhammad Ali would never have done that, right? Um, uh, the, on, the, on the Christian Broadcasting Network, he's on quite a bit. Um, and he's always smiling and talking and giving his testimony. So he's doing things that um, make mo many white Americans comfortable. And religion plays a role in that. Um, so part of my argument is the domestication process, um, in, in a sense, wants um, these black bodies to be tamed and not to be scary anymore, essentially. Right. So so before, I don't know much about George Foreman. Um, before his conversion to Christianity, he was, you're saying he was... Uh, he never smiled. He was mean. There, there was a palpable fear uh, of him. 
and Muhammad Ali. They're yes. palpable, tangible. Well, yes. I mean, even before the 1974 Rumble in the Jungle in Zaire, mind you. Um, I mean, the, George Foreman at the time was the heavyweight champion. So Ali beats him in, in, I would argue, the greatest boxing match in the history of the United States or the world. Um, but Foreman was laconic. Um, he didn't talk that much, but um, he didn't smile. He brought a German shepherd to Zaire with him um, who would be by his side. Um, but he did his talking with his fists. He, he was like, kind of like Mike Tyson, could knock you out with one punch. Ali couldn't do that. Ali was a finesse boxer. Could certainly punch, but he really tried to strike fear in you with his words. He called, you know, Foreman and all these his opponents like these crazy names. Um, Foreman just kind of sat there and took it. But that elicited, well, at least for the journalists that were covering the fight, they didn't give Ali a shot. They thought he was going to get killed in the ring, and he ended up taking a lot of punches, but coming back in the eighth round to win it. So Foreman struck fear in people because, in a sense, he didn't talk with his mouth, but he talked with his fists and could knock you out with one punch. I mean, he was incredibly powerful boxer, much more so than Muhammad Ali. So that was a part of it. In addition to that, he comes from the streets of Galveston, got into a lot of trouble as a kid, um, ends up uh, taking a job in Oregon as a part of LBJ's uh, Job Corps program. And that changes things to some extent, but he realizes that boxing is what's going to, um, to, it's going to help him make his way. But the only way to do that was to present this image, and it was a true one of him at the time, of angry and, uh, and in a sense quiet and was going to kill you in the ring. <laughs> And with Muhammad Ali, describe to us the, the fear that he gave Christian America, I guess we could say, or America, with his conversion to Nation of Islam and, and how he spoke of that. Um, and, 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 and what you say that was, that was sort of had never been done before, his sort of activism of a black athlete and what he right. did with that. And certainly not of, in the 1960s, the most famous, perhaps, person on the planet. Um, Right. So, you know, he, he starts off, in fact, his first press conference after the 1964 fight when he announces that he's now Muhammad Ali, which, by the way, um, there were reporters for The New York Times that refused to call him that into the 1970s. Um, there's a, a, a boxer that he fights in the, in the 1970s who's calling him Cassius in the ring. And Muhammad Ali beats him up badly and is saying, what's my name? Like he wants him to say his name. Um, right. It, it, it was what he said that was probably the most frightening or um, offensive to many white Christians is that, uh, you know, he said, listen, I grew up in the Baptist church in Kentucky, um, believing in a, what he would consider a white male God, right? That's what African-Americans have been told what Jesus looked like, for instance. And he just rejects all that with the nation of Islam theology that states that because Africans were the first human beings, those are God's chosen people. And therefore we have bought this a lie about who God is and about what Christianity is or the true God is, and therefore a wholesale rejection of that for him meant joining the nation of Islam, which has much more of a black-centered theology um, and certainly a centralizing of Africans and African-American people as those that are chosen by God. So therefore, it has to be a full rejection of, quote, white Protestant and Catholic Christianity for him. It's not just a um, I'm starting a new denomination. It's leaving Christianity and making claims about it. Not that, you know, he doesn't believe in Jesus. It's that your religion is flat out wrong. And we've been lied to about this for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, combine that with his political stance, which is the United States, is that which helps support and prop up white supremacy and this kind of white version of Christianity. And therefore, you're telling me to go to Vietnam and kill other brown people for white people. 
not going to do it. Right. And it's his religion that's actually motivating him not to. But his politics and his I mean, politics are, are very tightly intertwined with theology of Nation of Islam. It's there from the very beginning. So he's able to make a political stance by not going to Vietnam using his theology very easily. Whereas, say, Martin Luther King, you know, there's a little bit more trouble attaching his version of Christianity to, say, for instance, the Constitution, which he tried to do quite a bit, and he did it with some success. But with Ali, it was just baked into the Nation of Islam theology. But refusing to go to Vietnam and being a prominent African-American who's not doing what white America tells you to do, that's frightening to a lot of whites, certainly back then. Right. Okay, well, there's a lot there. Uh, we need to move on to the other two chapters uh, because of time, but uh, the listeners should just pick up your book next year. We are talking with Jeffrey Scholes, Associate Professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, about his book, Christianity, Race, and Sport, to be published next year by Rutledge Press. If you haven't already, please visit storyofamericanreligion.org and sign up for future podcast notifications under the sign-up tab. Jeff, under your or in your chapter about uh, religious expression in the NFL, you begin by suggesting that there is a double standard between whites and blacks. Can you paint this picture for us? Absolutely, Chris. So I, I start the chapter um, by using this, uh, this, this uh, chapter of a book by David Leonard um, called uh, Playing While White, where he says there's a double standard in the way in which fans, coaches, and either, even fellow athletes deal with trash talking in, in all the leagues. Um, you know, a, a white player that does trash talking, you know, kind of talking down to someone or yelling crazy wild things to intimidate the opponent. Usually when it's done by, and he has a lot of examples, when done by a white athlete, it's considered to be, um, you know, courageous and it shows his or her um, fight that's within. And, and uh, so it's, in other words, it's a positive. Oftentimes when African-American athletes do the same exact level of trash talking, they're labeled a thug. Um, they're labeled, you know, uh, a sign of moral decline in the United States. So right there you have a very clear double standard. And I wanted to write about, and I wondered whether there's a similar, similar double standard with religious expression, in particular in the NFL, um, amongst African-American players and, and, and white players. And uh, I, I argue that yes, indeed there is. Um, Oftentimes, and I, I kind of break it down with uh, these categories of religious expression in that comes through sport, right? Um, yes, and I wanted to. Kind of, I, sorry to ahead. interrupt. I, my next question was: Can you? I was going to list out those religious expression types in sports, and Please then do. maybe you could explain each briefly and give maybe an example. Sure. Let, let me lift, list those. Sure. And I apologize for interrupting, but you were nope. getting to exactly <laughs> what I wanted to talk about. The first one you call "It's Just a Game." Second, billboard. Third, glorification. Fourth, soft providential. And fifth, hard providential. I hope I got those right. Um, you did. Can you explain I'm to each, remember them too. And I can give them to you as we go. So the first, it's just a game. <laughs> okay, explain that and then give us a, an example maybe. Sure. So the, it's just a game is the kind of um, the attitude that uh, – you know, it, it, God plus, there, in other words, there, if, if, especially after a loss, you'll often, often hear this. And I'll give you an example of Tony Romo. That I'm from Dallas, so I'm a big Dallas Cowboys fan. Um, our, our old quarterback, Don, Tony Romo, after a particularly hard loss, said, well, you know, there's more important things to life. Um, there are people that would certainly say, you know, they're, they're 
spirituality or their religion is more important than winning or losing a silly football game. So you, you minimize the football game itself okay. in order to maximize something else. And that, that thing that's maximized most often is, is one's faith or family or something along okay. those lines. Okay. Uh, so that's kind of the, it, it's actually a defense mechanism or, or, or protection from, uh, you know, feeling the sting of a loss. Right. <laughs> Usually, right. Okay. Right? If you can say it's just a game, then maybe it won't hurt. Right. Bad. That's one way in okay. which um, it's a quasi-religious expression by saying it's just a game. Okay. Second, uh, the billboard. Billboard. So the billboard model is um, usually not necessarily a verbal expression, but um, I, I have examples of Tim Tebow when he was at Florida. There's eye black that oftentimes players put under their um, their eyes to absorb light so they're not as blinded by the sun. Tim Tebow would write, Bible verses, or not the whole verse, but like John three sixteen on on his uh, on his eye black. Um, the NFL does not used to not allow uh, any kinds of decorations on one's shoes, like unlike the NBA. But it's now doing this. It's it's allowing it for certain games. And sure enough, many many NFL players will put um, you know religious messages on their shoes, Bible verse on their shoes. Uh, Carson Wentz, the quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles, I think it's something like. Oh, I can't remember the the acronym he uses, but um, anyway, it, it's I think I think it's like a verse from uh, from Philippians that's on on the outside of his shoes. So this is the billboard model. I also think of you know that famous guy with the uh, rainbow wig in the 1970s and 80s, where at a field goal he'd be in the stands on the front row behind the, the goalpost, and he'd have up John 3:16 like for every big game. Um, that's that's the billboard type, okay. which then leaves. Um, you know, ideally, it's meant to provoke one to, uh, you know, look up that Bible verse or ask more about Carson Wentz. So it's not an exact statement and you're not quite clear exactly what Tim Tebow right. means to say about John 3, 16 or why he chose that verse. But that's why he wants you to go look okay. it up. Right. And so okay. we're trusting. But it's more of a, a, a billboard style of okay. religious expression. And I read uh, Stephen Curry has a, a scripture on the tongue of his shoe, which was interesting. I guess another billboard. He does. Uh, it's tight. the I can do all things through Christ who, yeah, right. on, the, on the inside tongue of his shoe. Right. I know. Right. So <laughs> you get that along with the Steph Curry shoe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, number three is glorification. Right. So the glorification model is um, the athlete that states something along the lines of, I play hard, I uh, help my teammates, I even win the game for the glory of God. In other words, it's not for my own glory or um, uh, compliments that I get. It's all for God. I think I quote Roger Staubach. There's countless ones of these. Uh, Roger Staubach, after I believe the 1971 Super Bowl, um, who again, again, it's a minimizing of one's own ability or the team's ability or the coach's ability to that say that if we did well, it's done for God's glory. And therefore, by stating that or by believing it, God is glorified not us or the team right. or the sport or all these good things. So right. it's similar to the statistic game where you're minimizing your own effort to some extent by saying it's all for God's glory, yep. not for fame, riches, yep. whatever else comes with winning. Okay. And the last two are, are tied together, soft providential and hard providential. Right. So providentialism as a theological term, um, in a sense, just means a, a God that intervenes in, in human history in some way. Um, the soft providential model, um, it, are, it, it has athletes stating that, you know, they're praying for strength for God. They're praying for um, no injuries. You hear that a lot for the health of the players. 
which means that if God is answering those prayers, God is in fact intervening, right. To, um, you know, keep people right. healthy and to give you strength and belief that you're going to win, especially if you're down. Um, so that's kind of a softer version. Tim Tebow is a classic soft providentialist, the quarterback, former quarterback for university of Florida and for Denver Broncos and New York jets and New England Patriots. And now a current baseball player, I think in the Mets farm system, um, I mean, a fantastic athlete, but a very vocal evangelical Christian. Um, he had that run in the 2012 playoffs. Well, the 2011 season for the Denver Broncos that people were calling miraculous. And but he would downplay that. Right. It's God that performs miracles, not Tim Tebow. Um, so he would he would, in a sense, say, I pray I give he gives glory as well at the end of every game to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But he would always say that I'm not praying for wins. I'm not praying for the ball to leave my hand and land in the receiver's hand. I'm praying for strength again, health and, and belief intangible things that God still has to intervene in order to affect at the same time too. It's much more difficult to uh, identify. Right. And then obviously with both providential models, if, if you didn't believe or there was major injuries on the field and you prayed for health of all players, you know, God didn't answer your prayer. Um, but it's easier to kind of, let God off the hook for either answering or not answering a prayer when right. you're praying for these abstract things. So that's what I'm calling soft providentialism. Okay. And then hard providentialism um, is, is what I just suggested athletes that are praying for God to actually intervene in the game itself. And therefore it's usually post game. Whereas athletes will say, um, you know, God wanted us to win. Uh, God guided that ball into my hands. Um, God allowed me to get that interception and, and run it back for a touchdown. That was God doing that. I have an example of Russell Wilson, the quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks. Um, they, they were in the NFC Championship game. I believe it was 2017, maybe 16, against the Green Bay Packers. And um, he threw four interceptions in the first half. They were way down, but they came back in the fourth quarter and won the game. And what Wilson said, he said, that's God testing us, right? So in other words, God, in a sense, intentionally – made him throw those interceptions to get them in a hole. So these, this, it's like a trial and tribulation that God wanted to have Russell Wilson and the Seahawks overcome. Right. So there's right. kind of a hard providential okay. uh, way of talking about it. Okay. So anyway, so that's, that's the hard providential. Okay. So now with that explanation, can you tell us how these are used and received along lines of race in the NFL? Right. So what I argue in the book is that um, this is this is a generalization. It's certainly not true of all players, but for the most part, you're not going to see as many white NFL players using hard providential language. If they use a religious expression at all, it's going to be the glorification. I mean, they'll use one of the, the, the first four most often. Um, and also, most often, you do or you see a, a, a more preponderance of African American NFL players that are using a version of hard providential language. Um, to some extent, and it may not even be on the field. I give an example of Reggie White, the former defensive lineman for the Eagles and the Packers, who passed away quite a bit ago. Maybe one of the greatest defensive linemen the NFL's ever had. Very devout man. It was it was a was a pastor as well in his in the off season. But um, he he believed that uh, God would tell him whether to sign with the, the Green Bay Packers or not. Right, God is going to intervene and and tell him whether to. And if God doesn't tells him no or doesn't answer, he's not going to join the Packers. Um, so uh, there's an example of he's an African American player. Um, I talk a lot about this uh, Sports Illustrated issue from 1998, leading into the the 1998 Super Bowl between um, 
the Broncos, I guess it was the Broncos and the Packers. So it would have been the 97 Super Bowl. Um, but they polled the, the Denver Bronco players in particular about um, what's the relationship they believe between their religion and sport. And of the seven, I think, Denver Broncos that they interviewed, um, I think there were two white players who used kind of soft providential language. And I believe maybe five of the six African-American players used very hard providential language that God brought them here physically, right? Helped them win the previous games to get them to the Super Bowl. And that God was also is essentially on their side and going to help them win the Super Bowl as well. So you have this kind of clear divide, but then the Sports Illustrated article, so then I kind of get into the, the meat of the matter, the double standard part of it. The Sports Illustrated article then uh, interviews uh, two ac white academics, but um, I think one was the president of Yale Divinity School at the time, and then a couple white pastors that lambast this kind of theological thinking, Number either saying this is bringing God into the messiness of a game where people can almost die on the field, um, into, the, in the, into a you know multi-billion dollar sport um, with celebrities that beat their wives. God does not care about football, right? God cares about other things, but God certainly doesn't care enough to come in and intervene in a game and enable a team to win, right? So the, the rest of the article are four white, essentially theologians that are bashing this kind of, of speech. They say that God perhaps provides strength, but God is not helping teams win or making other teams lose. God doesn't, God doesn't do that. God is greater than that. So in a sense, there's, they're complimenting or they're okay with the expressions of the white football players, not okay with the expressions of, of the black players. But the double standard is in, to, 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 at what I argue is, both are forms of providentialism. God is intervening in some way. What's the difference, right? And then I, I kind of chronicle a history of um, African-American religious experience of God intervening, whether through the Holy Spirit or to believe that God actually intervenes to either, you know, free the slaves, um, to help out with um, all kinds of problems in the black church itself. So there's a long history of this kind of theology being very prominent and useful to many African-Americans, whereby it's looked down upon by whites who are not undergoing the, nearly the kind of struggle that African-Americans have and continue to go through. So hard providentialism is a, a, a very helpful theology for African-Americans. So these NFL players are merely expressing that. Yet they express it to be shot down by fellow players. By the way, Aaron Rodgers was the quarterback that Russell Wilson was playing against. And he had this some smug comment uh, about Russell Wilson saying that God, you know, challenged them. God actually, you know, put them in a hole for a reason. Um, and then Green Bay beat Seattle the next year and Aaron Rodgers was asked about it and he said, well, I guess, um, you know, God was on our side this time in a very kind of smug way, which is, which again is a, um, a, critic, a critique of Russell Wilson's theology by him, the white quarterback saying, God doesn't care about football, right? In, a, in, mm. in essence. So I guess God wasn't on Russell Wilson's side this time. So, right. Wow. I don't think uh, I'll ever watch a sports game uh, the same. <laughs> this is, this is very, very helpful. Very, very, uh, very helpful. I think simply because sports is such a large part of American society, uh, to see the religious thread in it is a uh, is a benefit. I think to us all. I'll say I'll say this too, if you don't mind, for what you're saying. You know, I think for a long time, and one of the reasons why, you know, the religion and sport discipline didn't really get off the ground until the mid 1970s was that most theologians and or people doing religious studies just um, didn't consider sport to be as big as it is or as serious as it is. It's just a bunch of people running around shooting a piece of leather 
or hitting a piece of leather with a piece of wood. Why are we going to talk about that? But you do it at your own peril if you don't. Um, there are all kinds of connections, but one of the main reasons, too, for religious studies scholars, I believe, to at least be interested in sport, whether you like sports or not, is the kind of impact that it has on people, yep. positive and negative, right? right? I mean, more people watch the Super Bowl than go to church on that Sunday, so far more, um, just for instance. So, right. yeah, nope. it's, it's, it's a very big deal whether you like it or not. Nope. In fact, it's well, usually but, a big deal to those that hate it because they get so much attention, and these athletes get paid a lot of money, too. But anyway. Right. All right. Okay, Jeff, for the last segment, let's turn to a fairly recent piece of religion, race, and sports history in the United States. The chapter's title is compelling. As I said before, it is The Black Prophetic Fire of Colin Kaepernick. Can you share the story briefly in case we have forgotten about it? Uh, and then we'll move into to some of your analysis. Sure. So Colin Kaepernick, he brought the San Francisco for he's he's mixed race, but he identifies certainly as African-American. Um, but he, he, he grew up uh, as an adopted child in a, in a white family with a white family in California um, and really kind of came into um, consciousness about race in college at the University of Nevada, in particular with a, uh, an African-American fraternity that he was involved in. Um, but he kind of kept quiet for his, the beginning part of his NFL season. He was a fantastic quarterback. He led the Niners to um, a Super Bowl in 2012. Uh, then his play started to slip a little bit. And by 2016, the beginning of that season, um, he was not the starter anymore, but was still on the team as a second string quarterback. Um, at that time, I believe it was um, Eric Garner, certainly in response to some to the uh, Trayvon Martin killing. Um, but there began to be a rash of, uh, police killings of unarmed black men and some women as well. Um, and this is in, I believe, August, maybe late July in the preseason of the first preseason game um, in 2016. And Kaepernick sits down. Now, there's no cameras on him. They, ca they catch it from a camera. Someone caught it seeing, seeing Colin Kaepernick being the only one sitting down during the national anthem that they play before every game. Um, and so it began, the word began to get out. He sits for the next game. I believe it's the next game. He talks with uh, an ex-player named Nate Boyer, who's also an ex-Green Beret, who suggests that um, he kneels. Um, there's several, there were several reasons for this, but one is kneeling is there's a, a sign of, of respect, whether it's religious respect, like you're genuflecting to some degree, or football players take a knee all the time in practice. Um, so Kaepernick started to do that and got a lot of attention for it. Um, you know, President Trump, after he won the presidency in 2016, had all kinds of things to say about Colin Kaepernick, called him all kinds of names, said, go, you know, why don't you leave this country if you don't like it, blah, blah, blah. Um, it, it, NFL viewership was down. Um, Kaepernick was somehow to blame for this. Um, the, the main effect, though, as I was arguing, is that other players started to follow from high school ranks, middle school ranks, on all on up to other sports as well, not just football. Um Ka Kaepernick stays with the Niners that season, but is cut the following season and is yet to even be invited to a training camp since then. However, um, you could argue that his influence has been even greater because he has not been on the field. Um, right. I mean, he is widely revered by many, many, many people. LeBron James has said flat out, you know, it's Kaepernick that's given him the courage to speak out. Yeah. Um and Kaepernick, obviously, with the Black Lives Matter movement, the killing of George Floyd earlier this year, um, has been one of the people that's been looked to for advice, and he has given it. He started a nonprofit that's been incredibly influential um, in, in at least seeking and trying to minimize um, social injustice in our country. So okay. that's kind of the, the setup for yeah. who he is and what he did. 
Great. Thank you. That's, that's helpful. So would you help us with definitions of two things you use to describe Mr. Kaepernick and his protest? First, what is black prophetic fire? That's in quotes. And second, what is the African-American Jeremiah? Right. So um, I'm, I'm taking black prophetic fire. It's, it is not my, my, my term from uh, Cornell West who wrote a book about four or five years ago called Black Prophetic Fire. Um, and what he's talking, he's talking about um, past civil rights leaders that had what he calls this Black Prophetic Fire. And what he says that the, the prophetic piece of it um, is that they're not just talking about a kind of spiritual renewal. They're talking about rebelling against the powers that be. And for him, and he, for instance, in Martin Luther King's case, what many forget, they may remember that I have a dream speech. But they forget that later on in his life, he was very much against certain forms of capitalism and the Vietnam War, right? I mean, people either forget that or never even knew it because that's um, not the Martin Luther King Jr. that they, they want to know. So for Cornell West, this is the kind of prophet that we're talking about that is willing to take on any power that is furthering social injustice for West and for a lot of these civil rights leaders Um some of the quote evils of capitalism is what needs to be fought because it helps maintain white supremacy. Um, it certainly helps maintain uh, gender inequality, income inequality. And so what I'm saying about Kaepernick, um, for those that just say, well, he's protesting police brutality. He says that, and he is, but by kneeling for the national anthem at an NFL game, that is de facto a prophetic move as defined by Cornell West as one that is a big thumb in the eye of not only capitalism, I would argue, but also of militarism because the NFL of amongst all the American sports leagues is the one that is most closely tied to the military. The NFL had a, had a contract with the department of defense for about maybe eight or nine years. Um, and the department of defense was paying the NFL to promote the good things going on with the two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The Fox, the Fox sports crew would go to Iraq or Afghanistan and visit with the troops. Um, and they'd show that at halftime. Still to this day, uh, coaches and everyone on the sidelines and some players are required to wear uh, for a couple of weeks, a couple of, uh, of the games, uh, some kind of kind of camouflage um, way in which their, their logo is still there. But it's that which is certainly supporting the military, but there's a very tight connection between the two. So for Colin Kaepernick to kneel during the national anthem um, is, is prophetic in the way that Dr. West defines it by going not only up against police brutality, but also against, in a sense, the main big powers that be that help support white supremacy, which in turn helps maintain a level of police brutality against unarmed African-Americans. Okay. Okay, now let's move to the African-American Jeremiah. Tell us about that. Right. Right. So a Jeremiah, generally speaking, is a, a, a literature genre that um, it, it refers to the prophet Jeremiah, who uh, lamented quite a bit about the state of the, of, of the Israelites. Um, but there was always a hopeful ending. So it drew on the past, what we were, what we are now, which is usually not good, hence the lament in the Jeremiah. But given those, the past and the present, where we can go hopefully in the future. So that's kind of the, the stages of a Jeremiah. The American Jeremiah, um, I mean, they're being told all the time uh, with our supposed glorious past of the era of the founding fathers. 
um, you know, uh, uh, an adir, an adir certainly is, say, the Civil War, slavery, all kinds of, it depends on who you're talking to, I suppose. But in order to break through and move into a better next chapter, we have to reckon with these things in the past. The African-American Jeremiah doesn't have quite the same feel or tone as the general American Jeremiah because it's been bad and it continues to be bad. Has it gotten better? Sure, but it continues to be bad. So what exactly is the African-American Jeremiah relying upon in order to project a better future? Um, I, I write it, I use Todd Hesse Coates, the author of Between the World and Me, and his kind of feud with Cornell West because, um, and actually David Brooks, the New York Times writer as well, who writes about Jeremiah's and uses Ta-Nehisi Coates and says Ta-Nehisi Coates is giving us a very bleak future. And West and others say, yeah, he is, because that's all he's seen up to this point. So the, the purpose of using the American Jeremiah, along with West's notion of black prophetic fire, is to locate Colin Kaepernick in his protest. He, by his protest, and by a lack of words, frankly, he's really He's really gesturing without his mouth, but really with his body in a, in a kind of um, in, in, in the posture of kneeling during the national anthem. But he's signaling a version of kind of an African-American Jeremiah um, to point out and critique what's going on with the hope that it'll get better without stating what that will look like. He just wants the injustice to stop. Right. And that's more of a cleaner version of an African-American Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. If the injustice slows down or stops, it automatically gets better. The American Jeremiah has these kind of, you know, uh, dreams of the future, whether they're utopian or um, perhaps they're racist based. In other words, no more brown people in our country. Some people have that kind of end to a Jeremiah, sadly. Um, So uh, by combining the Brack prophetic fire and the American Jeremiah, I'm, I'm trying to kind of argue that Colin Kaepernick is just one of these athletes that's that's able to bring both of them together in a very profound way. Okay. Do you think he thinks that? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I wonder, I, he knew exactly what he was doing when he's kneeling for a national anthem during an NFL game. If you think about it, the owners are looking, the fans are looking, the owners, by the way, are up 100% white in the NFL. The league is 70% black. So there's a clear discrepancy there. And perhaps it reminds some people of a plantation. Um, which has been has been compared to sometimes, and the draft looks like a slave trade at times as well. Um, but it is a you know a thumb and eye to a vast majority of white fans, coaches, general managers, owners by kneeling for the national anthem. Um, so he knew he was he knew it was a big move. Now whether he connected all the dots, I I don't know. Um, right. But he doesn't have to. <laughs> right. You know. It is what yeah. it is. Maybe if he reads my book, he'll he'll, he'll right. know what he's doing. Now. Right. Right. Uh, Jeff, I know that we haven't touched on all the important points in, in your book, and there are many, but maybe in the last two minutes, do you want to share any lessons or takeaways from the book, either in terms of important historical transformations you were charting, or in terms of helping us better understand our present moment? Well, the main thesis of the book that tries to tie these kind of episodes together, whether it's Serena Williams, Jackie Robinson, the two chapters we talked about, um, Dabo Swinney, the coach of, of Clemson, um, is this notion of order and the, the ability for, in particular, white Protestant Christianity to apply order to areas of the society that they feel is chaotic or causing chaos. And black bodies have historically been sites where they perceive chaos to be. So my, my overall question is, how does religion do this in particular in the sports world? 
the domestication of Muhammad Ali, the sanctification of, of Jackie Robinson. I have a chapter on Serena Williams and the tennis umpire um, from the 2018 U.S. Open final, which many people remember. Um, she gets, uh, lost a game for, you know, certainly losing her temper. But there was an ordering that needed to go on of another black body in Serena Williams. So all the chapters have to do with um, the NFL attempting to order Colin Kaepernick by blackballing him from the league, right? Um, now that there's a financial hit and there, the George Floyd murder, I suppose, woke up some executives in the NFL. Now they're kind of apologizing, but it's, that was four years ago. They didn't say a word, right? And actually certain owners forced their players to stand like Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones for the national anthem. If you think about it, what could be more orderly than forcing players to stand with their feet on the line and doing this correct rituals for the national anthem, right? Um, of 70% African-American players who may or may not believe in some of these American principles that they're being told they should believe by white America. So that's the overall theme of the book. How does in particular white Protestant Christianity um, support the ordering of perceived areas of chaos in the sports world in the United States and race automatically comes into that. Well, I think it's a timely uh, book uh, considering uh, the reckoning with racism that uh, the United States has undergone once again this time in uh, 2020. Uh, and uh, I think you touch on, on something important as you bring that into uh, part of America that is so prominent, the sports world. So, so thank you for your insight. We have, been, we have been talking with Jeffrey Scholes, Associate Professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and author of Christianity, Race, and Sport, to be published next year by Rutledge Press. Here at the conclusion of this episode, we trust that listeners have a deeper appreciation of religious freedom as a governing principle in the United States and will see to its protection as an indispensable part of the fragile American experiment in self-government. Don't forget to visit storyofamericanreligion.org and sign up for future podcast notifications under the sign-up tab. Thank you, Jeff, so much for being with us. It's been very enlightening, and I hope you've enjoyed the time with us as well. I have, Chris. I have, Chris. Thank you so much. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes are released each Monday on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab.